want to especially welcome you this morning. We're going to walk right through verses 9 through 20, and if you've been with us for a long time, a welcome to you as well. Um, to all of you, I pray that the word today would be encouraging to your soul, be refreshing, but also be challenging and provoking. Just pause for just a moment. Let's consider, like, we're about to read the words of this drama that is unfolding in the book of Revelation. So ready your heart and hear. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write these words or write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But... He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, as we hear, as we think, as we feel, as we're engaged by your spirit, Father, I pray that above all else, that we would be captivated by the glory of your Son, Jesus, as we see written here in this passage, that it would change the way we think about life, that the reality of your Son as he is now would change the way we view the reality of which we live. How we view it and how we live in it. Father, for your glory and for the good and the joy of your people, it's in your Son's name I pray. Amen. This famous author, preacher, pastor said these words, Revelation is not puzzling speculation, but practical exhortation in the midst of persecution and temptation. I have just one thought for us this morning, really, for us to think about in this passage. We're going to kind of look at it from kind of three different angles But the thought you saw in the first verse is this, patient 
endurance. Patient endurance. And the three ways in which we're going to look at the idea of patient endurance is this. That we are called to patient endurance. That we are captivated for patient endurance. And we are compelled to patient endurance. So we are called to it. We are captivated for it, like readied for it. And we are compelled to it. We are moved toward patient endurance. Last week, we talked about this kind of general rhythm of life that we termed strife, revelation, and then doxology. Strife, revelation, doxology. That we live in the strife of persecution for our faith, the, the strife of our own sinfulness, the sinfulness of others, and the strife of just general human or creational brokenness. Our bodies are weak and such. But in the midst of our strife, the Lord reveals Himself to His people. And it's in the beholding of this revelation that His people respond then in doxology. Respond in praise. It doesn't dismiss the brokenness. It doesn't do away with it. It doesn't even necessarily fix it in the moment. But His people have a different perspective in the midst of it upon His revelation. They respond in worship. Let me ask this question. Does the revelation always come right away in the midst of strife as you sit and wait? Does the doxology just happen like a light switch? Right? Like you're in strife, revel, oh, there's Jesus, awesome. Nothing coming. No, humanity... Life is far more complex than just a simple, quick, one-after-another formula. Sometimes it takes time for what's in the head to sink into the heart. It takes time. Indeed, it takes patient endurance with life. Life is hard. And if we don't learn that first, patient endurance is a thing, and it's an expected thing, and we don't learn how to interact with life and, and look to the Lord for patient endurance, then we will never find a refuge this side of such life, this in the midst of such strife. And we will struggle to walk in joy in the Lord and for His glory as well. So the first thing I want you to see in verses 9-11 through 11 is that we are called to patient endurance. We are called to patient endurance. Verse 9. He says this. I, John, your brother and partner in why? Read these words. In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in exile for my faithfulness to God. You see it in that verse. Strife, kingdom, patient endurance. There's two ways in which I see in this passage, that we should see in this passage, 
that we are called to patiently endure. Two things. The first one is this, to patiently endure suffering. To patiently endure suffering. Now here's the reality. Now step back with me for a second. You and I, those of us who are followers of Jesus, redeemed by the blood, live in the middle of two kingdoms. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of God. I want to talk about each one of those for just a brief second. The kingdom of man promises something and delivers something else, while the kingdom of God promises something but delivers something else. Here's the two. The kingdom of man promises peace, but instead delivers brutality, fear, brokenness, etc., That's the kingdom of man. Promise of peace delivers the opposite. In politics, let's go there. I told you we were going to get on it. All those speaking, all right, I know, I heard the moans, right? All those speaking, I do mean all, promise peace. Promising peace. Vote for me and there will be peace. It's just in different shades. It'll, peace will look this way, peace will look this way, peace, the, it, it, you get the point. Vote for me, I will get peace from racial tension. Vote for me and we'll get peace through financial security. But then what is consistently delivered? And what will be delivered again over the next four years no matter who? It won't be peace. At least not peace the way the Scriptures define it. How about in your own little kingdom? So let's let's move away from the, the, the meta aspects of the United States. How about in your own little kingdom? Everything you pursue ahead of Jesus, you pursue it because you believe it offers you peace. If I can just have this... It'll bring me peace. Listen, you wouldn't pursue it if you didn't believe it brought you peace. You wouldn't go after it if it promised you suffering, would you? I mean, you would be foolish to do that, right? I mean, that would not make any sense. Hey, come work for me. Suffering awaits. Sign me up. Hey, Susie, if you can get control over this, you will still have fear. So come get it. Or, hey, Brad, if you just wrap your mind around this situation and understand it fully, you'll still face brutality. Or, hey, leader, if you can just get the people to do what they should, you'll still face bitterness. No, each pillar in your kingdom promises you peace, rest, hope, delight. It promises you your best life now if you could just grab a hold of it. That's the kingdom of man. But the kingdom of God promises strife. It promises strife and delivers peace and confidence and eternal salvation to those who patiently endure. It delivers strife. It's an expectation. Say, what? Listen, strife is promised to those 
who want in God's kingdom. Listen, we live in a culture that hates this. You and I hate this. And in some senses, we should hate the idea of strife. Absolutely. But we live in a culture that tries to, we try everything we can to isolate ourselves from pain or strife or suffering, etc., etc. But strife is promised to those who want in God's kingdom. He says, John, a partner in the tribulation, a partner in the strife and the kingdom. Just a few verses to help set this up for us. Matthew 24, 9. You can go look at this later. Then they will, this is Jesus speaking, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for not, for my name's sake. Does that look like a conditional statement? Like it might happen or it could happen? No, he's saying this will happen. Or in Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Strife is expected. Or Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Strife is not an option. Listen, if I'm being honest in many ways, over the past couple years, this has been a a revelation for me. Like, I've been trying to spend most of my life isolating myself from such things. And the Lord's like, what what would you expect? I told you in my word, here it is. Strife is not an option. What requires patient endurance is not an option. As we walk in God's kingdom... There will be strife. There will be strife. We're called to patiently endure suffering. And that suffering can look a myriad of ways. Again, suffering because of the sinfulness inside of us. We must patiently endure that suffering because of the sinfulness of others. Suffering from outside the church, suffering from inside the church. Strife is to be expected. And we are called to not just endure it. So we just endure it and we grumble and moan and complain through it and get bitter about it. No, the idea of patiently endure it. Like graciously confidently, lovingly, peacefully enduring the tribulation that God has put in front of us. Listen, we will suffer for His kingdom. There is no doubt. Patiently endure. Let's move to verses 10 through 11. He says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Listen, here's the context. John, under the threat of persecution, 
and his own struggles, he continues to patiently endure serving the church. So we're called to patiently endure suffering, but also to patiently endure serving or service, particularly unto the church. That's what, that's what John, rather, is modeling for us. Understand the anguish. I mean, John is in exile because of the gospel. He's been cast away. He's been shut away, put in another place because of the gospel, because of what he's proclaiming. And God expects him, even in this moment, to continue writing more stuff in service to the church that would likely cause him more suffering. Saying, hey, John, I know you've done these things over here. Thank you. That's awesome. It puts you in jail. Now go do some more. And John patiently endures. And you say, but I thought church was supposed to be this peaceful refuge. I thought the church of following Jesus was supposed to be somewhat easy. I thought the leadership was supposed to look the way I wanted it to, or that relationships are supposed to be gravy. Listen, whoever told you that? Whoever told you that? Where'd you get that lie from? If you got it from a preacher, he should be fired. Let me ask you this question. Is your service unto the church, does it require patient endurance from you? Does it? For some of you, it does. For some of you, it does. I've sat with you with coffee. I've sat with you in meetings. I've talked to you before or after service. And you are patiently enduring, heart-wrenching, joy-filling service in this place. And you know well the struggle that I speak of. On the other side of the spectrum, some of you serve when it's convenient. When it makes the most sense on your schedule. You serve when you get time. Or you have plenty of energy. Or it feels good. And your service requires no patient endurance. Likely because you are serving yourself. Let me press in on a particular item. As many of you know, we are working towards a new facility. Where we are hoping to call our our kind of base of operations, a, a, a refuge indeed, for us to work through and from. And listen, if you are not patiently enduring the restoration of such a facility, then you will not patiently endure serving the suffering people who will walk into those doors.
Listen. Some of you are serving, but serving in ways that don't necessarily look like swinging a hammer. I'm not speaking to you necessarily. As I was speaking to someone this past week, it was really helpful to me. Indeed, it was last Sunday. It's easy to fix a wall. It doesn't move when you're done. It's hard to patiently enduring serving a new believer who still wants money for his drug addiction. He gets back off the wall and starts to wander around. It's hard to patiently endure a prostitute that try after try, you can't get her out of the cycle. Those things take great, patient endurance. And if we have a hard time enduring some building of things that will not move for ages, we will have a hard time caring for the broken. Indeed, I would argue we probably have a hard time caring for the easier people around us, quote, unquote. Or another example. So I'll move on from that example. I pressed in. So let me ask you, are you patiently enduring? Because there are things like grumbling and gossiping and such that are antithetical to patient endurance. Another example, this whole COVID mask thing. Are you struggling to patiently endure wearing a mask? I mean, I have, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I've grumbled about it too. If that's hard, again, the examples I listed above, how will we do it patiently enduring the care of someone who just, you're like, I just don't get it, or I've given and I've given and I've given and there's no return. How do I keep giving and giving? How do I... If your service doesn't require patient endurance, then you are likely serving yourself. We are called to patient endurance in our suffering and in our service. But here's the question, right? How in the world do we do that? How do we patiently endure? The first thing is this. We must be captivated by the right drama, the right picture. Our hearts must behold the right thing in order for it to be pointed and positioned in the right direction. We must be captivated for patient endurance. Verses 12 through 16. A better picture then what's on the horizontal plane must captivate our heart's eyes. 
the position of your heart has to change. Listen, you can endure anything so long as whatever has you captivated is worth it. Let me give you some examples. You can endure poor cinematography if the storyline has you captivated. I did this recently. The storyline was great. It was like classic literature. It's awesome. Cinematography, ah. You can endure a poor storyline if you're captivated by the cinematography, right? It's called a Marvel movie. Sorry. All right, that, that, that might have gotten the last group of people who, have, who weren't offended yet. All right, I can't believe I said that. That was not in my notes. In relationships, hear me. People will deal with some relational garbage if something about the other person has them captivated. It could be the looks. I tried to insert something here with Sarah and I, but like about me. Anyways, could be the money. It could be the security. You're willing to put up because you're captivated by this thing. Why don't you take a moment with me to just right off the top of your head, think of the top one or two things that you endure. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe who knows, but you endure it like a champ. Why? You endure it like a champ, but why? Because something in there has you captivated. It could be security, the paycheck, the prestige, etc. Something has you captivated. You will work for hours on end. You will put up with some horrible garbage because what has you captivated is worth it to you. So listen to me here. How come then these other things of God are such a struggle for us to endure? When life in the church gets hard, how can we want to check out? Spending time in the Word each day, how can we ain't got time for that? For some reason, we don't have the patient endurance for those things like we do for the thing we were just considering. Patient endurance. When our eyes are fixed on the wrong things, we need the Lord's mercy to break through our captivated gaze and replace it with the ultimate one. We need His mercy. And God does just that. God mercifully reveals His glory for His people to behold. He breaks through. Think about it this way. How do you know that you're sleeping when you're sleeping? Anybody here consciously aware that you're sleeping while you're sleeping? No, it's not until you wake up. It's not until something hits you that you go, wow, I was sleeping. It's the same thing here. God has to break through, through our captivated gaze into something more grand than what our hearts are set on. And in this passage, we see two aspects of His merciful revealing of His glory. We see the mercy of His presence in verse 12. The mercy of His presence revealed to His people. He says this, John, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Listen, wow, like John is like, oh my gosh, he turned towards me. 
And there he stands. Listen, the lampstands catch John's eyes at first. Listen, all throughout the scriptures is the theme that the world lives in darkness because of sin. And yet in the midst of the darkness appears a light. I'm sure John can't help but think about what he wrote earlier in John, not Revelation, but in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 12. He says this, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John is going, wow, there's lights. Those of faith in Christ who walk in the darkness of this world will have the mercy of God's presence, a light upon the path. Think of it this way, a light amidst the strife. A light amidst the strife. Loneliness and strife, shame and strife, and there's a light in the midst of the darkness. Whether you can see it or not, saint. Whether you can see it right now or not, the light is there. Whether you see it or not does not change the reality of it. Certainly, it's very real to you that you can't see anything. But I'm telling you, the Word of God says that there is something that supersedes and helps you understand the way you view reality now. And that is that Jesus is the light standing among the lampstands that is His church. Whether you and I can see it or not, it's there. He's there. But not just the mercy of His presence, but also the mercy of His glory revealed to us. Verse 13 through 16. Again, can't help but read these words. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand He held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We just talk about this picture for just a moment. We will not do justice to these words. But the phrase, eyes were like a flame of fire. His eye, what's, what's he talking about there? What he's talking about there is that nothing escapes the all-searching pure gaze of Jesus. Nothing escapes it. No sin will escape His notice. He will see every faithful thing His people do. And He will note every injustice done to His people by their enemies. Nothing will escape the all-searching, pure gaze of Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in in a furnace points to the absolute purity of Jesus, refined in a furnace. He went through the furnace, a voice like the roar of many waters. This description of the powerful voice of the risen Christ 
is arresting, communicating his authority, which is to be obeyed. Here's why the picture of it is loud. It's loud because it is to drown out the other voices that would call us away from the true faith and the holiness that marks those who know God. His voice is louder. We have a lot to learn from that in practical day-to-day living. We should seek to make His voice louder than the voices of this world. From his mouth came a sharp, I'm sorry, held, he held seven stars in his right hand. Listen, the church of all time fits into one of Jesus' hands and there they rest. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus will speak decisive words of judgment. They will be clear and accurate and precise. Everything that comes from his mouth. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Listen, the painful brightness of the sun on which we cannot fix our eyes. Listen, go back, work through this passage again. In the midst of God's great and powerful glory displayed in the person of Jesus is the mercy that He would reveal Himself to us. Because it is in His revelation to our blind eyes that the incomparable glory of Jesus captivates our gaze and motivates and positions our hearts to obedience. If your eyes are captivated by the all and majestic glory of Jesus' mercy and justice on display, then you are positioned to patiently endure whatever He has planned for you. If it's not, then it will be harder than what it was meant to be. You're positioned patiently. Listen, why? Because when we behold the picture, we look at it and go, it's worth it. He's worth it. I can patiently endure this because He's worth it. I pray that even in this moment that that begins to awaken your captivated gaze on something else and to turn the eye of your heart towards Jesus. And then look what happens when John is captivated by this scene in verses 17 through 20. He is in verse the beginning of 17. He says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I was compelled, compelled to patient endurance. We are compelled to patient endurance by the glory and the majesty of God. John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Wow. You ever consider the glory and magnitude of God and just fall silent in that moment as though dead? As though I have nothing to say in this moment. 
but to sit and to listen. The glory of Jesus overpowered John in a way that no Roman emperor could imitate. That nothing on this world could imitate. We should be encouraged that God's glory surpasses all other glories. You know why that should, like, why that should encourage us? Because then there's hope in the midst of whatever it is that has your gaze captivated that you can be captivated by a greater glory because indeed it is greater. Listen, Jesus is not just your buddy. He's not just your friend. We've lost sight of His majesty, beauty, holiness. What would happen if you responded to God's glory like you do the glory of your paycheck, the glory of that other person's opinion, the glory of that easy life, the glory of your control, etc.? What if the glory of God eclipsed or overwhelmed the glory you seek elsewhere? Listen, John was terrified. He was terrified. John fell because he felt unworthy, overwhelmed, powerless, weak, infant-like, helpless in the face of such magnitude and weight. But look what Jesus does. Look what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't leave John. He doesn't neglect John. He doesn't say, John, you better pull yourself up. He doesn't say, John, you better get your act together. You better have greater faith, John. He doesn't say, you better toughen up for this patient endurance and get your act together. What's he say? He looks at John and he puts his right hand on his shoulder. Don't forget the picture, right? What's John just seen? Wow! Glory! Magnitude! He falls to his feet and there Jesus reaches out. This picture reaches out his hand and puts it on his shoulder as though he was his friend as he indeed was. And in the midst of John's strife and tribulation and patient endurance and beholding the glory of Jesus, Jesus says to him with his hand on his shoulder, Fear not. Wow! Fear not. You can see... The powerful, weighty God reaching His gentle, merciful hand and places it on John's shoulder. In the midst of it, He says, Fear not. The power of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ should overwhelm and encourage and compel patient endurance. I want to give you four realities that compel patient endurance. These are four realities according to the Word of God, whether we can see these realities, whether we grab a hold of them, whether they're convictions that drive us. These are true according to the Word. 
four realities that compel patient endurance. The first one is this, God's mercy and freedom from death. God's mercy and freedom from death. Verse 18, the second part, he says, Jesus says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I got the keys. Jesus has authority over the death we fear. We all fear. What we do is we just spend a lot of our lives trying to numb ourselves or escape from the fear. But when life slows down and you actually have a moment to think and let yourself think, there's fear. Fear of death, ultimately. Death of a dream, death of hope. All these ultimately point to our fear of death and separation from God for all of eternity. That's why we chase after that dream of control or perfection or affirmation or power or our preferences. Because you believe that in securing it, you will be free from the death you fear without it. But Jesus says to you and I, don't fear. Why? Because I got the keys. They're mine. You don't have the keys. That person doesn't have the keys. Satan doesn't have the keys. The government don't have the keys. Those people down the street don't got the keys. Your kids don't got the keys. I got the keys. Fear not, my child. You and I don't have to look for the keys to unlock the door unto life. We just have to look to Jesus because he has the keys. And if I'm called to patiently endure until the end, I can do so because he has the keys. The keys to keep the door locked unto death. And the keys of life at heaven's eternal door. He has the keys. So one, God's mercy and freedom from death. Two, God's mercy and his sovereign plan. Uh, verse 19. Right there, for the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. All that we are called to endure is under his wise and loving plan. You and I may not know what is next that we are, will be called to patiently endure. We may not know how long the patient endurance in this particular item may take. But He does. Someone said this, We write our plans in pencil, but God writes them in ink. Why? Because He knows them to be sure. They will happen but they're also under His merciful, loving, and all-wise, sovereign plan. God has shown His mercy in sovereignly orchestrating a plan that involves everything necessary to our patient endurance as He brings us home. Number three, God's mercy in helping us understand His revelation to help us understand it, to grasp it, to know what it means. Some call it the illumination of the Word, a work of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 20 it says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He gives understanding to His revelation. 
Patient endurance is compelled as the truth of God's word is revealed to our minds and to our hearts. It sets our mind toward right belief so that our heart knows the direction in which it should go as the truth sinks into our heart. Number four, God's mercy in His patient endurance. Again, four mercies of God that compel patient endurance. His patient endurance and His mercy in it should compel our patient endurance. In chapter 1, 17b to 18, it says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen, we are called, back to the beginning, we are called to patiently endure suffering and service in the midst of persecution and temptation. There is no doubt. But my, how deep of a struggle this is for us. It is for me. It is a daily fight for me, and most days I feel like I'll lose that fight. Suffering comes across my table, and I lose the fight to patiently endure time after time. Temptation comes across my path, and I lose the fight to patiently endure. If you go back, there's this theme of only those who patiently endure strife will enter His kingdom of peace and refuge. And what is our greatest fear? Not making it through and God abandoning us unto death. This verse reminds us that Jesus is our only hope in patient endurance. He is our only hope. This scene of His triumphant glory says this, that Jesus patiently endured this earth, the temptations and the persecution, that He patiently endured suffering all the way unto death and through death. And He even patiently endured the wrath that you and I deserve for our sinfulness, for our lack of patient endurance when we are called to be such. He paid the price for that. He patiently endured the price that you and I deserved. And after doing so, behold, He says, I am alive forevermore. I have triumphed over it. I have patiently endured it all. And John Fear not, for I have the keys to life everlasting. If your faith is in me, John, in Christ alone, fear not. Not because Jesus isn't terrifying in his glory, he certainly is. But that through the cross and the resurrection, he has put his arm upon your shoulder and said, Fear not, my child. I am all that you need. 
you and I can patiently endure. Because in Christ, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. For He has taken our greatest fear off the table. Let's pray. Father, I know life is hard, and I don't even know the extent of it, but you do. Each of us, in the midst of our own strife, from sin with, from within, sin from without, the brokenness, the physical brokenness of life, But Father, in the midst of that, we are called to patiently endure. Patiently endure. And Father, how we need your help. Father, how we need your help. Life is not like a light switch. We just walk into the room and flip it and the light's on and we can go about our ways. Father, our hearts... Need your help. We cannot just change the direction of our worship, Father. We need your help. We need you through your Son to reveal yourself to us. And Father, I thank you that you have done that to us in your words this morning in the book of Revelation. May our hearts grab a hold of it. May it cast aside these cheaper gazes and settle securely on the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray these things, I ask these things, I beg these things for your people, for my own heart. And I ask them in the name of your Son, Jesus, Father. I know you want this for your people. May it be true of us. May it be true of refuge. And may we then patiently endure whatever it is that you've called us to. Father, we need your help. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.